You know, I lived in Utah for about two years when I was a kid with my grandparents, and uh, it was a blast living there as a kid in a small town, 800 people, you know, a little Mormon town, uh, about 45 miles from uh, Bryce Canyon. That was fun stuff. Riding horses, fishing, riding motorcycles in the hills. Uh, be a tough place to live, you know, in a small place like that, you know. But uh, it, was, it was fun as a kid. Well, we are in Numbers chapter 31. Uh, so, open your Bible with me. This is a war, a sermon about holy war. Uh, because that's what the passage is about. One of the tragic facts of life in a sin-cursed world, one of the tragic realities is this, it's war. Um, war exists because of two reasons. One, because uh, the world is filled with sinners, and two, Jesus Christ is not here ruling the world in his kingdom. If people were not sinners, we would not have war. Or if Jesus Christ was here ruling in his kingdom, we would not have war. I mean, that's what the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. It says that when Christ returns and brings his kingdom... He says that uh, they're going to take their swords and they're going to turn them into plows and they're going to take all of the instruments that were there for war, they're going to be turned into productive, uh, peaceful purposes. This is what's going to happen in the kingdom of God when Jesus Christ returns. But until that day comes, the world is filled with sinners. Christ is not ruling here on the earth. So we're going to have war. And that means that you better prepare for it you better have an army, otherwise somebody's going to invade you. And you better have a big enough army to scare the people away because that's why Ukraine is being invaded. There's not a big enough threat to uh, Vladimir Putin for him to say, I better not do this. If there was, you know, I, I, think, I think most everybody would understand this, even non-military people. If Putin thought he was going to get a really bad, bloody nose in a conflict, he, uh, he would not do what he's doing. But he thinks he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish, so that's why that's what's going on right there. That means that you better protect yourself, and you know that's why we have armies, and that's why we have police forces. You can't defund the police. <laughs> in the kingdom of God, you can. Why? Because the church is going to be there in resurrection glory. Uh, we're going to be a police force in the world, and so are going to be the resurrected saints of the Old Testament, the world is going to have, so to speak, a police force. It's going to be Jesus Christ ruling on this earth, plus all of his glorified saints uh, from past ages are going to be there in the kingdom. So Christ is going to rule with an iron rod, it says in Psalm 2. You're going to have peace, even though there's still going to be sinners living in the millennial kingdom. Okay, but all of this raises a question. Is there such a thing as holy war? You know, the Arabic term is jihad. Is there such a thing as holy war? The answer is, uh, yeah, we see it in Islam. In Islam, they have a worldview that says that their calling is to bring the entire world under Islamic domination, and they believe that God has given them the calling to use any and every means to accomplish this purpose, including use of violence and war. That's a very standard part of uh, Islam that comes out of the Quran and out of their, uh, their other teachings, use any and every means to subdue the world for Allah and Islam. Now, if you were talking to Muslims um, and you did a survey of, you know, uh, let's just say 100 Muslims, 
there's a good possibility that a fair number of those Muslims might say, well, I don't think it's right for, um, for Islam to use violence against other people. You, you would definitely get a, a proportion of, uh, of Muslims that would say, well, no, I don't think we should use violence. But any means of subduing the world for the name of Allah and Islam is very much a part of Islamic theology. That's their worldview. Uh, a, a consistent Muslim is not going to have a coexist bumper sticker on the back of their car. Not all Muslims follow this kind of thinking. Uh, matter of fact, you know, uh, back in Torrance, uh, I had a mechanic, his name was Ken, uh, and he was from Persia. Nice guy. So, you know, I used to talk to him when we would take our Toyota van in for uh, some kind of work, and you know, it ended up one Sunday night after we finished church and we had our Awana children's ministry, we would always go to a McDonald's, you know, with, with all of our kids and all of the Dorsey kids and all of the Salcedo kids and some others. So we'd come into McDonald's with a gang of about like 20 kids, you know, and, and, and our kids discovered that you could come down the McDonald's slides really fast if you came down on a tray, so they would grab one of the trays and they would be just jamming down and, you know, uh, and the other kids are there like are running to their parents and saying, Mom, those guys are scaring us, you know. But we would do that every Sunday, every Sunday night, kind of the routine. You know, some of you guys like to go to Culver's every Sunday night. Great routine. We would either go to McDonald's or to uh, Giorgio's Pizza. And uh, that was just fun fellowship and stuff. But one night at McDonald's, Ken was there, my Islamic mechanic. And so I ended up talking to him, sharing the gospel with him, went out in the car when they closed McDonald's, and we kept talking till about midnight, and then my wife calls me and says, where are you and the kids? It's like, I'm sorry. So she came down and got the kids. I ended up talking to Ken till like two in the morning, and uh, you know, through that conversation and others, he came to profess Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, a couple months later, he got baptized and professed Christ, and it really cost him. His family cut him off when that happened. Uh, there was another lady. She used to teach Farsi. She was from Persia. Her name was Masume. She was about 75 or so at that time, and the former pastor used to let Masume use uh, a Sunday school building for teaching Persian language, not Islam, but just Farsi. And uh, so, you know, she said, can I keep using this building to teach some students? I said, yeah, that's fine. But, you know, she was a sweet lady. I ended up, you know, talking to her over many months. She put her faith in Jesus Christ. She professed Christ in baptism. You know, praise God, you know. So, you know, we, we don't want to, when I, we talk about Islam and their, their doctrines and what they do as a, by the way, you know, how, what percentage of, let's say, Germans Otto maybe could help answer this one, but you know, did, did all of the Germans in World War II back Nazi philosophy? No. But you know, there were some, and they gained control. Okay? And so this is, you know, this is what happens in Islam, is that you have you know, a, uh, a violent ideology that does end up you know, kind of controlling things, and that's just how it works. Okay, but here's another question related to that. Do we see holy war in the Bible? Does the Bible ever teach holy war? The answer is yes. <laughs> uh, we're going to see that tonight in Numbers chapter 31. Now, when Israel, uh, you know, when we get past this passage right here, 
and we come to the time when they are going to go and take possession of the land of Canaan, this is what God says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. Holy war. God says, I am there in your war. And it'll come about that when you're approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He will say to them, Hear, O Israel, you're approaching the battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid. Don't panic. Don't tremble. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. That's holy war. So, you know, if we look at Islam and say, gee, those guys are really, you know, whatever because they believe in holy war, it's in the Bible. <laughs> now, we are not the nation of Israel that have been commanded to go conquer, uh, you know, the land of Canaan. You know, God didn't command, you know, Christians in Colorado to go subdue Utah <laughs> and take it back from, uh, you know, the Mormons or anything like that. God has not given us a command for holy war. We have a war, it's the war of the gospel. Well, here in Numbers chapter 31, we see a step of preparation for Israel to actually go in and take the land of Canaan. But this time it's going to be that God has commanded them to make holy war against the Midianites. Now, who are the Midianites? Well, if you go back into Numbers, not Numbers, but Genesis chapter 25, let's just look there for just a minute. Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 and following. We come here to the story of Abraham, continuing in the story of Abraham. Abraham is an old man. Abraham was 137 years when his wife, Sarah, died. And then it says that when he was 140, he went out and got remarried. How do you like that? Tom, you ready to get remarried at 140? <laughs> That's what Abraham did. Genesis 25.1, Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore to him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua, six sons. And Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. Uh, and these are all Arabic, these are all Arabic uh, tribes that you look at right here. Jokshan, uh, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, Elda'ah, all these were the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, which would include um, Hagar and Keturah, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and then he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. So he took care of his family. You know, his uh, second wife, Hagar, he gave a large amount of wealth to Hagar and to her son Ishmael. And then when Abraham remarried as an old man, he gave a huge amount of wealth to Keturah and to the sons to take care of them. But his inheritance went to the chosen son, Isaac. So the Midianites really are descendants of, uh, of Abraham uh, through another wife, just like Isaac is the ancestor of the uh, people of Israel, Isaac and Jacob. They are descendants of Abraham. Ron Youngblood says the Midianites were a nomadic people who were enemies of the Israelites in Old Testament times. 
They were distantly related to the Israelites because they sprang from Abraham. But generally speaking, as you look at the history, they were foes to Israel. Now, if you went way back into the time of Abraham, you know, this is just new family, extended family. But remember what happened at the book of Genesis? Who was it that actually bought Joseph as a slave? They were Midianite slash Ishmaelite slave traders. So, and, and there's kind of an overlapping idea between Midianite and Ishmaelite. Ishmaelite was kind of the broader idea of saying, well, it's the Arab uh, kind of origins. Ishmaelite was in particular the family coming from Ishmael. But these were, those were Midianite slave traders that bought Joseph. Now, remember what happened. So Joseph is way back in about 1900 B.C., right? Book of Genesis. Right now, we are in the book of Numbers. This is 1400 B.C. So we're 500 years later. What kind of interaction and relationship do the people of Israel have with the Midianites at this point? Well, Moses, when he had to flee from Egypt because he had killed an Egyptian, Moses came into the land of Sinai and Arabia, and Moses ended up marrying a Midianite woman, Zipporah. So his family, through marriage, you know, Moses' family in marriage were the Midianites, Jethro, his father-in-law, and Zipporah. But that's the last friendly connection you find between Israel and the Midianites. It involved Moses and his marriage into the Midianites. From that point on, they were hostile to Israel, and they were hostile to Israel here in Numbers chapter 25, because if you remember, Balaam, in Numbers chapters 22 to 24, Balaam was a pagan false prophet that tried to put a curse upon Israel. The king of Moab said, hey, I'll pay you, you know, a good chunk of money if you'll just announce a curse upon them. And Balaam, he tried to curse Israel. And then God said, no, I'm not going to let you curse Israel. I've already promised blessing to them. I've blessed them. I'm not going to let you curse them. You have to pronounce a blessing. And the king of Moab said, I paid you to put a curse and Balaam said, sorry, man, <laughs> I got to do only what God tells me. But then what happened is this. Balaam said, tell you what, I can't put a curse. I can't declare a curse because God forbid me to do that. But if you really want to get these guys in trouble with God, let's bring in a bunch of Midianite, uh, Moabite, Canaanite prostitutes, which is all part of Canaanite religion. We'll bring in all of these prostitutes the men of Israel will start sinning with all of these Canaanite uh, priestesses, prostitutes. God will get angry with them, and God will judge them. And that's exactly what happened in Numbers chapter 25. 24,000 of them struck down by, uh, by God in judgment. They tried to destroy Israel. And that's why, right here in Numbers chapter 31, God says, okay, we have a little score to settle with the Midianites for trying to destroy the people that I have chosen and blessed. So here in chapter 31, we find six teachings about this idea of holy war. And it begins in verses 1 to 6. So we're going to look at this section by section. Uh, we're not going to read the entire chapter in one chunk, but we're going to look at it section by section. So the first teaching about holy war is in verses 1 to 6. There is a need for it as we see. Numbers 31, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you're going to be gathered to your people. 
Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So they were furnished from the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the war with them and the holy vessels, and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So Moses is going to be dying very soon. God says, Moses, you're going to be gathered to your people, which means you're going to die. (laughs) Being gathered to your people, the idea is is that, you know, okay, I'm going to die, and I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to be with all my ancestors. God tells him he's going to die, but first he says, you have to take revenge. You know, notice in verse 2, take full vengeance. You know, the term nakam, the Hebrew term, means exactly what we have in, in English thinking. It's the idea of retaliation, but it's not the idea that God is, you know, exercising a, uh, uh, you know, a sinful reaction to something that somebody has done to him, but it's the execution of just punishment. We understand how just punishment works in our legal system. You know, we see that somebody does something you know, uh, unrighteous and wicked and harmful to another person, we say that person needs to pay a price. At least that's what we're supposed to say. We're losing the capacity for being able to say that because godless thinking is overtaking our culture and we can't even say that's wrong and needs to be punished. We're, we're losing any capacity to recognize right and wrong. But here, here's the reality here. This had to be Eugene Merrill says the reason why this is is because Midian's role in trying to destroy Israel back in Numbers chapter 25. Now this is harsh stuff. Admittedly, it is harsh stuff. But it had to be. This is holy war on evil. And you know, this happened, you know, what, this is 1400 BC. This happened 3400 years ago. But uh, this is not the end of God's war against evil. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Keep your place right here. Um, well, uh, keep your place right here. Let's, and we're going to come back to this just in a moment. But turn with me to Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. You want to see what it's going to look like when the little lamb of God, Jesus Christ, returns? He's not coming back as a little lamb to be slaughtered. He's coming back as a roaring lion to devour his adversaries. Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapters 6 through 18 show us the flow of what's going to happen during the seven-year tribulation period. There's going to be seven seal judgments. There's going to be a scroll. Uh, This is the imagery. And every time a seal is opened on the scroll, God's judgment begins to pour out. When you come to the seventh seal on that scroll, it introduces seven blasts of seven trumpets. All of these representing the outpouring of God's wrath on a fallen, wicked, Christ-hating world. When you come to the seventh trumpet blast, you come to seven bowls that are poured out. All of this, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, are representing the things that are yet to come. Revelation 1.1 tells us these are the things that are yet to come, and it represents the outpouring of God's wrath on evil. When you come to Revelation chapter 16, this introduces the seventh bowl, but the seventh bowl does not get exhausted in Revelation 16. It continues. The flow of God's judgments on earth resume with Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. 
I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and what? Wages war. This is Christ himself waging war on unrepentant sinners. In particular, he's waging war upon all the armies of the world that we read about in Revelation 16 because it says that all of these nations of the world are going to gather together in a central valley in Israel called the Plain of Jezreel on the um, central part of Israel. This is uh, near an, a mountain called Mount Megiddo, Har Megiddo. The word for Har is the Hebrew word for mountain. So Har Megiddo means the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is on the southwest edge of the Jezreel Valley, right, near, right at the edge of Mount Carmel. But that valley down there in the middle, it's about a 20-mile wide valley that is going to be a gathering place for the armies of the world. Israel has an underground air force base. You can't see it if, they're not, if things are not out there, but there's a, a huge air force base right under the bottom of that uh, valley of Jezreel. But this is going to be the gathering place. So in Revelation 16, it says that you've got all these armies that have gathered together in central Israel to wipe Israel out. Ain't going to happen. Why? Because their king returns to wage war. Revelation 19.11, he comes and he judges and he wages war. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon himself which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is not the cross, this is his enemies. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. That is the resurrected church that was described in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. The bride has clothed herself in fine linen, bright and clean. This is the resurrection glory of the church returning with Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. They were following him from heaven to earth on white horses. Verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. All of this language is coming out of the Old Testament. The imagery in the language is describing the coming of the Messiah at the end of the age to establish God's kingdom. It is going to be a bloodbath. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and commanders and mighty men and horses, those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, free men, slaves, small and great. There is going to be a bloodbath in Israel when Christ returns. This is going to be the annihilation of all of these unrepentant armies that are there to wipe Israel out. And then I saw, verse 19, I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, and against his army, and the beast was seized, along with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire. They were brought into resurrection and cast into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and all the rest were killed with a sword, which came out from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." It is going to be a bloodbath. Now we see what happens is that immediately following the return of Christ, when he destroys these armies that are trying to wipe out Israel, 
what's the very next thing that happened? He establishes his kingdom. The coming of Christ it was what brings the kingdom of God to this earth. He's the eternal king. I mean, he created the universe. But the rule of Christ is not going to be here until he returns and brings the kingdom. When he returns, it says in Revelation 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Christ brings the millennium to this world. His return brings the kingdom. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Why? So that he might not deceive the nations. Verse 3, he shut it, he sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After that, he'll be released for a short time. And then I saw the thrones, and they sat upon them. Here's the resurrected saints. And judgment was given to the saints. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. Here's saints that got killed in the tribulation period. They got killed because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, because they would not worship the beast or his image, and they didn't receive the mark on their forehead or upon their hand. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for the thousand years. Resurrected saints who were killed by the Antichrist for refusing to take the mark of the beast. God raises them in resurrection. They're going to bear the marks of being slaughtered by the Antichrist, but they're given resurrection, and they reign with Christ for the thousand years, just like you and I are going to be there reigning with Christ for the thousand years. Verse 5, the unsaved, they don't come to resurrection until the end of the millennium. The, all of the unsaved are raised at the end of the millennium. So there's the resurrection of the righteous, of all believers, of all ages. Then there is a millennial kingdom then you have a second resurrection, the resurrection of the unsaved. That's the resurrection of the dead. Comes at the end of the thousand years. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, it says in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan is going to be released from the abyss the abusus, the bottomless pit. And he goes out and he brings a massive temptation to those people that were born during the millennium. People that are born in the millennium still have to get saved. Everybody that enters into the millennium is a believer, but you're going to have people born over those thousand years. Those people are going to have to repent and personally receive Christ as Lord and Savior. For those that don't, Satan goes right after them brings a massive rebellion against them. It doesn't last very long. But here, here's the point that I'm getting to, that when we look at what God says has happened here in Numbers chapter 31, that God himself is going to wage holy war on evil, that's not the last time it's going to happen. Christ is the one who's going to bring it to uh, a, uh, a final conclusion. Harsh stuff, but this is what you have to do to deal with evil. Now, let's come back here. Come to verses 7 to 12. The first thing we see is this. It is the need for holy war. Secondly, verses 7 to 12, we see the slaughter that it looks like. Verse 7, So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. The sons of Israel captured the women of Midian 
and their little ones, and all their cattle, and their flocks, and their goods, and they plundered it all. And then they burned all their cities where they lived, and all their camps with fire. They took all the spoil and all the prey, both man and beast. They brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the sons of Israel, to the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Total annihilation of the entire male population. Now, there's no doubt that uh, there were some who ran away and survived. This is not the last that we ever hear of the Midianites because we can look even uh, in the book of Judges and we see that there were Midianites that were uh, you know, making attacks upon Israel. But this was a massive wipeout of the uh, majority of the uh, population of Midian, in particular, the males. They killed the males and then they killed the kings when it says they killed all the males, it says that they also killed a man by the name of Zur, the son of Cosby. Hey, who is Cosby? Well, when we went back into Numbers chapter 25, when Balaam said, hey, I'll tell you how you can uh, wipe Israel out. Just bring in all of the temple prostitutes from uh, the Canaanite religion. One of these was a, a girl, a lady by the name of Cosby. And her father was one of the princes of Midian. Her father was basically a king from the Midianite tribes. So it mentions right here, in particular, the, the death of Zur. He was the uh, Midianite father of Cosby, one of these Midianite priestesses that had gone. And she was the one, if you remember, she was the one when Phineas saw what was going on. Because they brought her right in to the uh, guy's tent. And they went right in. And Phineas said, I'm not going to let this stand. And he goes in with a spear, and he put a spear right through both of them. And God said, good job. That, that was, this was the kind of evil that you cannot allow uh, to come into uh, the camp of Israel. So God commended Phineas. Here you see that Cosby, um, she's already dead, but uh, you know, her father was killed in all of this. Furthermore, it says they killed Balaam. Well, you know, I already, we already talked about Balaam. Balaam met his Waterloo at this time here. Now, you know, some people have a little bit of a hard time with this, you know. How could God do this? Because admittedly, it is harsh stuff, right? I mean, you know, it is harsh. I don't think it's wrong, but, you know, I'll just say, yeah, this is harsh stuff. How could this be? Well, this, is, this would be another example why it is that we have to understand who God is, why it is so important that we know the truth of God's Word, and, what, how, and that we understand the nature of sin and a fallen world so we can have a right perspective on anything and everything. You see, if we understand uh, God's Word correctly, we're going to understand that uh, each one of us deserves the same thing that these people got. I believe that. You know, back when 9-11 happened, so that was what, 20 years ago? 9-11-2001, 21 years ago, right? I remember they interviewed MacArthur because MacArthur's, you know, uh, a prominent figure. And they, they said, okay, look, we see these towers collapse, men, women, children, there were babies in there. You know, where was God in all of this? He says, he was right there. I mean, immediate answer. He was right there. Did God cause... Uh, these uh, suicide bombers to fly the planes into the towers? No. They 
were wicked people uh, trying to murder other people. They made that choice. But was, were those events within the sovereignty of God? And if you understand the Bible, you have to say, yes, it is within the sovereignty of God. Just like in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when we look at uh, the cross of Christ, you know, Peter says that Christ was delivered up by the predetermined plan, the foreknowledge of God. The predetermined plan is his foreknowledge. Christ was crucified according to God's eternal plan. In Acts chapter 4, in verses 27 to 29, Peter says that all of these things happened according to a God's hand predestined to occur. So this was not some cosmic accident that happened that God said, oh my goodness, you know, I didn't see that one coming. One word that you don't see in God's dictionary, it's the word oops. Oops. I use that word all the time. Oops. God does not ever say oops. The cross was the worst event in human history at a moral level was according to God's eternal purpose. Why? He was using human evil to accomplish his salvific purposes. That doesn't mean that God approves of the evil. That doesn't mean that God approved of, let's say, the killing of you know, people at 9-11, but it was within the sovereignty of God. So if we understand the Bible correctly, uh, if we study God and his working, nothing is outside of his sovereignty, but also nothing is outside of his goodness and his mercy and his compassion because all of those attributes of God are part of the nature of God. When we talk about the attributes of God, we use a word called that God is the simplicity of God, meaning that you can't tear one attribute out from the others. They're all part of God's inherent nature. That would include his wrath, his holiness, his goodness, his sovereignty, all of it is part of God. But if we want to properly understand anything, like Numbers chapter 31, and you say, how could this be? We have to understand sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Keep your place right here, but go with me to Romans chapter 9 for just a minute. And I want you to look with me at verses 22 to 23. The whole chapter, Paul is defending God, so to speak, and we call the idea of defending God theodicy. Theodicy comes from a compound word, theos, God, and dikaiao, to justify or to defend or to uh, acquit. So theodicy is the idea of saying, no, don't blame God. So chapter 9 is very heavily dealing with the idea of defending God against the accusation that Israel's disbelief and Israel's failure is somehow God's fault. Paul says, don't you ever dare to say that God is wrong. (laughs) He's never wrong. Everybody deserves wrath. So look at Romans 9 verse 22. What if God, although he is willing to demonstrate his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And God did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Notice in verse 22, is God, is God willing to judge sin? And that's what he means. Is God willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known? The issue is this, is God willing to judge sinners? Yes or no? Yeah, he is. God is willing. So, but he, he describes here, he's saying, what if God, even though he's willing to do this, he's willing to judge sinners, he's willing to demonstrate his wrath, he's willing to make his power known. Instead of that, he endured 
with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Who are the vessels of wrath? You and me. That's a fallen humanity, a sinful humanity. Now, some of you in here are really nice people. Okay? Some of you are really, really nice people uh, that probably, you know, who knows, man? You, you, maybe you never even got a speeding ticket before. You ever had a speeding ticket? Oh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Doug Beck's never had a speeding ticket. I can't fathom that, you know? <laughs> never even had a cavity. Like, who is this guy? Here's what I'm saying. When we look at humanity and we talk about people, you know, we can look at a relative level and say, man, that person is such a kind, nice person, and maybe they've had a path throughout their whole life where they've been nice people. But tell you what, they are every bit as a damn sinner as I am, and you are. And if you don't understand that, we need to, we need to have a theology class in hamartiology, the study of sin. Everybody is a fallen sinner. So when Paul describes the fallen human race, he calls us vessels of wrath. In other words, that's where we're headed. We're headed for wrath. Now notice what it says right here. We're vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Okay, I'm going to give you guys a trick question here, but it's not really a trick question. Who prepared them for destruction? It just says they're prepared. They're ready. The form of the word here is a, here you go, a perfect passive participle. Uh, it is a descriptive term. It doesn't say who prepared them for destruction. It doesn't say that. All it says is they're ready. The verb katartizo means to be ready. Vessels of wrath ready for hell. Here's the human race. We are God's wrath is upon us. John 3.36 tells us that. And we're ready to be sent into hell. We're prepared for destruction. Uh, to, you, to give you an analogy, if I said to you, come to my house tomorrow evening for a prepared meal. Who prepared it? I didn't tell you. All I'm saying is it's prepared. It's ready. So when Paul talks about the human race, he says that we are headed for wrath. We're ready for destruction. Now, why is it? Is God the one who made us into this state that we're in? No, the answer is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam, don't eat from that tree. Okay. What did Adam do? He ate from the tree. So the reason why we are vessels of wrath headed for destruction, ready for destruction, is because of mankind's rebellion against God. That's who we are. Vessels of wrath ready for destruction. But it says, what if God, he endures with much patience all of the fallen human race? He endures with much patience. Why does he endure fallen human beings? For this reason, verse 23, so that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy whom he prepared beforehand for glory. You notice here that there's another word prepared in verse 23, only it's not the same verb back in verse 22. Verse 22 is the word katartizo. Here we have the verb hetoimazo in verse 23. Furthermore, in verse 23, it was a participle. It was just adjectival, describing the vessel of wrath. But here in verse 23, it's actually the form of a 
main verb. Main verbs have subjects. Who is the subject, grammatically speaking, who is the subject of prepare beforehand in verse 23? Not a trick question. Who's the subject? Huh? God. It says that God, the people who are called the vessels of mercy, the vessels that receive mercy from God, they receive mercy from God. Why? Because God prepared them beforehand for glory. When we look at the exercise of God's sovereignty, when it comes to the doctrine of election and salvation, the doctrine of election, which is completely biblical and flows throughout the Old and New Testaments, the doctrine of election emphasizes and magnifies that God exercises his sovereignty in displaying grace to those whom he has chosen. This is election right here. He has prepared them, he, beforehand. When is that? Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that he chose us before the foundation of the world. Okay, now the the main point that I'm kind of getting to here, the operative principle for our study right now is this. Every single one of us deserves God's wrath. And the only thing, the only thing that keeps us from obtaining what we really deserve is God preparing some beforehand for glory. Does election touch every human being and save every human being from eternal wrath? The answer is no. And if you say, I don't understand why that is. Well, you can ask God. If you're going to be in heaven, you can ask him when you get there if you dare to. But God doesn't tell us, oh yeah, by the way, I exercised this mercy upon uh, some, but, and here's the reason why I did it, but here's the reason why I didn't exercise that mercy here. He does not tell us that. And we have no right to demand that we should tell God, give me an answer. We, we have no right to do that. But when we are honest with the Bible, this is what it tells us. We all deserve damnation, and he shows mercy to some. So when it comes to the execution of judgment upon sinners, like you see here with the Midianites and like you see in the Canaanites, what God is really doing when he takes Israel and says, go in and annihilate these sinners, Israel has become an instrument for the execution of God's righteous judgment. And I admit, you know, this is harsh stuff, but God is executing judgment using Israel. And Israel is just as sinful as the Midianites. The nation was chosen by God to be that that chosen nation, but God is executing a judgment using Israel. In this act, says uh, uh, Dennis Cole, uh, he says, God is vindicating the righteous and punishes the sinner as an essential part of his ethical and moral moral and just character. So this is not out of retaliatory revenge for some kind of sinful reason, but a vindication of his own holiness to judge evil. Now listen, you and I just need to, here's what you and I need to do. We need to just say, God, thank you for not treating me like my sins deserve. Because I deserve that and so do you. And if we don't understand what our sin deserves, you're going to really have a twisted time in trying to put the rest of it together, right? You're not going to be able to put it together if you don't understand what our sin deserves. 
Well, that brings us here to verses 13 to 18. Come back with me. A third teaching about holy war, Israel's failure. They did a lot right, but they didn't do everything right. Verse 13, Moses and Eleazar, the priests, and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of the thousands, and the captains of the hundreds who had come from service and war. And Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? Behold, these are the ones that caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so that the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known any man intimately. But the girls who have not known any man intimately, you can spare for yourselves. So what happened is, is that when they came back, they had babies, young males that they had spared. And they also had all of these women, including the Canaanite temple prostitutes, the priestesses that had been the ones that came into the camp of Israel back in Numbers chapter 25. And Moses said, what in the world are you doing? The only ones that you're to keep alive are young girls, women, young women, if they're a virgin, or young girls that are still virgins. Slaughter every other one of them. Harsh stuff. One writer says here, the Midianite woman, he said, should have died because they were the ones responsible for Numbers chapter 25. Another writer says here, holy war had its purpose, the eradication of all impure elements from the geographical region and the ethical territory um, that they were part of in the nation of Israel. And again, you know, you may look and say, man, this is tough to handle. Well, it is, but remember, I deserve it and so do you. That's a fact. That's a fact. So here's a couple lessons. Number one, God is holy, and we are not. So if you come back to Numbers, uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 22, we're vessels of wrath, ready for eternal damnation. <laughs> that should change the way we think about things. But we're furthermore, we're reminded about the fact that God is always just when he judges evil. You know, listen to Paul in Romans chapter 3 when he's talking about God's justice. He says, Romans 3, 5, If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what are we going to say then? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Paul says, oh, I don't even want to say something like that. You're going to suggest the idea that God is unjust? Don't you ever do that. May it never be. In Romans chapter 9, in verses 14 to 21, Paul goes to great lengths to say, don't you ever accuse God of injustice. He's God, we're not. We deserve wrath. Don't you ever accuse God of injustice. That should make us eternally thankful to God that we don't get what we deserve. It's a right attitude. So, holy war, as we see, is necessary. It's brutal. Israel didn't carry it out in full as they should have, but Moses fixed that afterwards. Verses 19 to 24, here's a fourth teaching. They had to be cleansed afterwards. Death is defiling. War is defiling. So in verse 14, Moses says, you've got to clean yourselves up. Verse 19, and you camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves. 
you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. Back in Numbers chapter 19, we had legislation about killing a red heifer and then burning it and taking the ashes and making a holy water that was used for purification. So Moses said, you guys are defiled from war and death. You gotta cleanse yourself. Verse 20, you shall purify yourselves, every garment, every article of leather, all the works of goat's hair and the wood. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to battle, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded. Only the gold and silver, the bronze and the iron and the tin of the lead. Anything that can stand fire, you shall pass through the fire and it'll be clean, but it shall be purified with water for impurity. Whatever cannot stand fire, you'll pass through the water. You wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean. So there were two ways of purifying everything, including the people. One way is to use water. So anything that is, you can permeate, like clothing or leather, use water. But if, if you can burn it, you know, like metals, iron, bronze, whatever, gold, silver, you would burn it in the fire. And there's a ceremony. This is ceremonial purification is what it is. But here's what he's saying. You guys have been defiled from all of this death and warfare. If you want to stay in the camp, I'm holy. You have to be holy. Purify. Verses uh, 25 to 47 uh, the spoil of the whole war. You've heard the expression, to the victor goes the spoils, right? It's the way it works. You have the victory, it belongs to you. Well, here in verses 25 to 47, God gives him instructions on what to do. And basically what, uh, what we see in this section, I'm not going to go through every one of these verses because we're running light on time and some of these things I don't want to spend time on. But here's what happens. God says, okay, everything is going to be divided, Soldiers who have gone out to war, they get their portion. And they do end up, after taxes, they end up with a, a lower tax rate, okay, so to speak. And so they do end up with a little bit more than the rest of the whole congregation. But God says that the rest of the whole congregation gets to share in the victory as well. And then there are the instructions that comes out here where he says, okay, but there's a tax that comes out of the whole thing as well. And the tax portion is going to go to God to be in the tabernacle itself. But everything gets split. Uh, and then, you know, it's got all these uh, numbers here. You know why they call this the book of Numbers? There's a lot of numbers in the book of Numbers. And so it gives all these breakdowns of how much weight and how much went where. And it gives all this breakdown here in verses 25 to 47 of all the, you know, donkeys and sheep and all kinds of things. There's a lot of spoil, a lot of plunder from the victory. Now, here's something interesting to consider. The population has just been annihilated uh, by the Hebrews. They're taking away everything from the Midianites. Their cities have been burned. I mean, it's in rubble. It's in ruins. I wonder, I wonder how this was having an impact on Moses, you know? This was his people for 40 years. <laughs> you know, I wonder what that must have felt like for Moses. I'm sure it was painful. I'm sure it was painful. But this was the victory. Lastly, verses 48 to 54, our final point uh, about holy war is this. It's God's grace that was at work. Because, you know, when people prepare for war, when generals prepare for war, they say, well, you know, we've calculated uh, our estimated uh, human loss. You know, we think we're going to suffer, you know, 25% loss of our 
of our army. Then you say, let's go, time to fight, right? That's the cost of war. The amazing thing here, not one single Hebrew was killed in all the war. How could that be? This was, this was never repeated anywhere else in the Old Testament with any of Israel's battles where not one single person uh, you know, died in the war. So verse 48, the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds approached Moses and they said to Moses, your servants have taken a census of the men who are men of war who are in our charge. No man of us is missing. So we have brought an offering to the Lord. Uh, what each man found, articles of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. Moses and Eleazar the priest took the gold from them, all kinds of wrought articles, all the gold of the offering which they offered up to the Lord from the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds, 16,750 shekels. The men of war had taken booty, every man for himself. So Moses and Eleazar the priest took the gold from the captains of the thousands and hundreds and brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. Not one single one of them was missing. And so out of thankfulness, when it says to make atonement, they, they made this, this is not an atoning sacrifice for sin, but the idea is, is that God has spared us. And so because God spared us, we are now going to pay a price to show our gratitude. When it says here that they had 16,000 shekels, this is 420 pounds worth of gold. That'd be pretty nice. And they gave it to the Lord to go into the beautification of the sanctuary, a thank offering to the Lord. So how can we apply all this? Just three points for application right here. Number one, never forget, as we've talked about so much, that uh, a right understanding of God and ourselves, a right understanding of God and ourselves, we need to walk away and say, I am so thankful that God has not dealt with me as I deserve. You know, I love Psalm 103. You know, the Lord has not dealt with us as our sins have deserved. Be thankful. And let that make you humble as well. Gratitude and humility. Another lesson, don't forget that God will deal with all unrepentant sin. He dealt with Midian back in Numbers 31. He's going to deal with, you know, unrepentant sinners when Christ returns. Nobody's going to escape God's hand of justice. So when you look and you say, this is really evil that this person did this, you know, whatever it is, something against you or something that you've seen, it, it, it is not escaping God. He will deal with it. And lastly, uh, never forget that uh, when we talk about gratitude for not receiving what we deserve, but God showing us kindness that we don't deserve, think about Romans chapter 12. I urge you by the mercies of God, Present yourselves as a sacrifice to God, living, holy, and acceptable, which is your spiritual service to God. It says reasonable service. Interesting, it's actually, uh, yeah, your reasonable service to God. Giving your entire you know, heart to God in loving obedience, that's what we should be doing, you know? That's right. Father, we thank you for uh, this night when we can, for a few brief moments, take our eyes off of uh, this uh, messed up world and we can look to you 
a God who is uh, full of mercy and compassion, but a God who is also uh, holy and just and judges evil. Thank you, O Lord God, that you have not treated us like our sins have deserved. Thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you for drawing our hearts to you, opening our hearts to, uh, to understand our need for Christ and opening our hearts to trust in you. You deserve our praise and our thanks. So uh, help us, O God, to be thankful people and to live uh, the way that we should. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.